0: Hello and welcome. My name is Raj Persaud. I'm a consultant psychiatrist based in London and I'm in conversation today with Maurice Hoffman, who's the author of a new book just published called The Punisher's Brain, published by Cambridge University Press. Maurice Hoffman is a trial judge for the 2nd Judicial District, Denver, state of Colorado. He's a member of the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation's Research Network on Law and Neuroscience and is a research fellow at the Grutter Institute for Law and Behavioral Research. He's an adjunct professor of law at the University of Colorado and the University of Denver, He teaches courses on jury history and selection, law and neuroscience. Um, This is a fascinating book uh, about the neuroscience of what's right and what's wrong and Um, a variety of of issues of of relevance to everyone Uh, anyone who's been a parent or a child anyone who's meted out punishment or been at the receiving end of punishment. Um, Maurice I want to start with an opening question which is you make a grand claim in the book which is that punishment lies at the heart of all human civilization. What do you mean by that?
1: Well um, first of all Raj I think um, there's a a perception, especially a modern perception, I think, that civilization is sort of a uh, cultural Johnny come lately, and and it, it takes all kinds of, of flavors. So if you're if you're Thomas Hobbes, you say that uh, that uh, man's natural state is is being selfish, and that we need a strong government um, to prevent that selfishness from from eroding civilization. At the other end of the spectrum, if you're Rousseau, you say man's natural state is, is good, and that civilization corrupts that natural state. And, and, it, and it seems to me that since Darwin, it is now clear that neither of those views is true, and that um, the, the core of civilization is how we evolved in intense social groups. Um, Not agriculture, uh, not these other institutions that really are cultural, Johnny come come lately, but but that the core of civilization is our intensely social natures. And uh, I argue in the book that uh, those intensely social natures would would never have been able to flourish, uh, especially in animals as viciously clever as we are, um, uh, without having uh, a certain kind of punishment third-party punishment uh... deterring cheating uh... so that's the that's the central idea of that claim.
0: what's really interesting to me um, is that y- you as a trial judge seem to be arguing that all of us are beset with a dilemma that could be referred to as the social problem which is that um, we we understand that there are certain benefits to cooperating with people around us and observing rules and laws, but on the other hand, there's also advantages to us should we break the rules and look after our own self interests. Um, and you you give many wonderful examples in the book of this issue, but one example I'd like you to talk a bit about is the example you give of, of Rousseau's example of a group out hunting for a stag. Um, and the tension within the individual of a group out hunting for a stag if they come across a hare um, and and they could break away from the group and and hunt for the hare instead. Could you
1: explain the example and what the the point the example is making? Sure. Um, uh, With no small amount of irony, I don't think, uh, Rousseau was one of the first people, maybe the first person, um, to articulate this uh, sort of thought experiment. It It really began as a... As his thought experiment, and his his uh, experiment was this: uh, you have a group of hunters, and they're hunting a stag, and a stag is a very fine animal for this group of hunters to catch, but it's elusive, and so you need all hunters, let's say 20, you need all 20 of them to encircle the to encircle the stag, and even if one hunter is missing, the stag will will go free through the space that that missing hunter leaves. And, and he posed this question. Let's say as the group of 20 hunters is closing the circle around the stag, one of the hunters sees a hare. Now a hare is not as fine a catch as a stag, but that single hunter is gonna have to share the stag with all the other uh, 19 hunters. And so he's tempted to grab the hare, leave his post, and let the stag Go free, and so Rousseau asks um, that if these are the if these are the social tensions that that uh, that drive us, uh, how do we ever end up cooperating when there's such a such a deep temptation to cheat and it's a question that evolutionary theorists uh, have been asking themselves for many 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 years, and it's it's really the one of the key questions uh, surrounding the deeper question of how it is that a species as socially intense as we ever could have evolved.
0: And you give some other wonderful examples um, illustrating one of these issues, which is our ability as individuals to form judgments um, about others' behavior. Um, You you give a a nice example of um, experiments where Um, an experimenter gives an individual a sum of money and then they make an offer of this sum of money to another individual and the individual can either accept the offer, in which case both people get to split the money, or if they reject the offer um, uh, no one gets any of the money. Could you explain the experiment and explain what the experiment is trying to say?
1: Yes, this is another one of these um, experiments that started out like Rousseau's stag hunt as a thought experiment, but the, but the experimental economists have, have made these actual experiments that have now been played millions and millions of, of times um, in all different uh, cultures, in fact, and together as a body they've, they've, uh, they've said some important things about what human nature really is like. So the game that you're talking about is one of, of several different games that I mention in the book. It's called the ultimatum game and you described it exactly right, let's say there are two players A and B uh, and and the uh, experimenter uh, describes the rules to both players this way A has $10, he's given that by the experimenter the the, the amount of money can, can change, the results don't change much depending on the amount and he has a choice to offer B um, anywhere from $1 to all $10 and, um, and, and here's the trick of the game. B then gets to accept or reject. And um, and so in a perfectly uh, selfish world, if, if humans really were um, built to act abjectly, uh, in, in an abjectly selfish way, uh, players would offer $1 because they end up with $9. Um, and so that's the best, Offer. It is what um, mathematicians call the Nash Equilibrium. It's the, it's, the, it's the play that best insulates players from the other players' different strategies. But, but in the real world, when this game has been played millions and millions of times, humans don't act in that way at all. In fact, the average offer from player A to player B is, is somewhere between 3 and $4. And we all know why. If we give this some thought, the answer is, if player A offers less than $3 or $4, he knows that player B will reject. Oh, I didn't mention that, if Player, the important part of this. If player B rejects, nobody gets anything. And so, and so in this ultimatum game, we have this incredible reverberation between players A and B about their predictions of each other's behavior and 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 player no player a knows that player b uh, will uh, reject a low offer um even though it's not in his short term economic interest to do that player b knows that player a knows that et cetera, et cetera. and so uh, and so the plays uh, depending on culture a little bit but the plays end up being anywhere between uh, $3 and $4. In other words, our strategic guesses about how other social animals will behave are keys to driving our own behaviors, and in fact are keys to driving our own behaviors um, uh, to, to maximize our own individual fitness. And so the lesson of all these games together is that in a species as social as we are, it sometimes the most selfish play is to cooperate. And and
0: kind of what you're arguing, I think, in the book, is that most people think of punishment as something hived off to a particular corner of society, like the police and the judiciary. Um, but you're saying that punishment actually is slap-bang at the centre of the human dilemma, because within us all is this tension between doing what would advance our own personal self-interest but getting on uh, with other people and if it wasn't for punishment and a punishment system human civilization would break down because within all of us are these tensions and it's an interesting view because you would have thought that, that a judge would take a view that there's just bad people in the world out there a small number of bad people and the rest of us are good and that the judiciary is there to deal with the bad people but you seem to have a very radically different
1: view than that well, well i think that's right and if we go back to the, the to the stag game and think about that the reason the stag game is such a wonderful uh, example of these um of these thought experiments is is because the stag game has some resonance with with perhaps has some resonance with with the uh, challenges we face as we were emerging 200,000 years ago, so imagine those same 20 hunters, uh, and one of them faced with going after a rabbit to his own short-term individual advantage to the group's long-term disadvantage. Uh, it's it's a very, as as Rousseau recognized, it's it's a, a very very powerful temptation to cheat. But if that cheating had consequences. If that cheating came with punishment, uh, then that uh, cheating hunter has a little bit more to think about and so the idea of third party punishment which is which is punishment imposed by members of a group against someone uh, who cheats uh, cheats against the group as a whole doesn't just injure an individual. The argument uh, that I make in the book, um, was critical to our um, to our ability to survive in, in in groups, and without that third party punishment, our groups would have disintegrated into this sort of anarchy of selfishness, uh, the very anarchy of selfishness that Rousseau's stag game is all about. And and it, it, the, the book also talks about different kinds of punishment. I think there are three sort of different categorical kinds of punishment what I call first-party punishment, second-party punishment, and third-party punishment. So first-party punishment is when we punish ourselves for violating uh, group norms. Um, we also call that guilt or conscience. And, uh, and, and so much of the reason you and I don't rob banks is because our brains uh, have been built uh, with these pro-social uh, tendencies Uh, They're just tendencies, they're not perfect, and and the argument in the book is that they were not enough to prevent enough cheating for our groups to remain stable. But there's a second level of punishment, second-party punishment. And second-party punishment happens when when you cheat against me directly. Let's say you steal some food from me, and I retaliate. One of the reasons I don't steal from you uh, isn't just because I know it's wrong, um, first-party punishment but also because i know that if i steal food from you you will punch me or somehow engage in some other form of second party punishment um, so but in a, in a in an animal as intelligent and devious as we are those two levels of punishment the book argues were simply not enough and third party punishments this willingness that we all have, this pro-social willingness to punish wrongdoers even when the wrong is not aimed at us. The argument is that that was what allowed us to, to live in the intense social groups in which we evolved.
0: Let's talk about that first order sense of internal, personal punishment, the conscience guilt thing, which is kind of keeps us on the straight and narrow without the direct intervention of laws or, or police, this sense we carry around within us of what's right and wrong, and we act um, on that, uh, largely speaking, and that also is a civilizing influence. Um, again, there's a fascinating section of the book on psychopaths, which are these very interesting Groups of people who don't seem to have a conscience or feel guilt, um, and I was particularly interested in the experiment you quoted, which looked at psychopaths being group therapy in prison before they were released. Yeah. And the group therapy actually seemed to make them worse, um, and and seemed actually to make them more
1: dangerous. I wonder if you could say something about that because that was fascinating. Right. If, if memory serves, it was a it was an experiment or a study in um, in Sweden. And and the way it worked was um, uh, these these um, investigators uh, looked at two groups of of, of Swedish uh, prisoners. Uh, the control group control group had no had no particular therapy, and then the test group had some uh, sort of traditional group therapy. And um, and, the, and in in both groups. Uh, Both groups consisted of of prisoners who were convicted of fairly serious offenses, and a a certain percentage of them were were psychopaths. In fact, a huge percentage of incarcerated individuals are psychopaths, something like 20 to 25% versus, I think, 1% in the the non-incarcerated population. But anyway, in this experiment, the psychopaths who had group therapy as opposed to no treatment at all did worse by all measures of this experiment, including uh, recidivism rearrest rates uh, uh, violent rearrest violent re uh, convictions and uh, when they talked to some of the psychopaths who had the group training, they said um, the, the group training helped them understand um, the social connections that they that they didn't really feel because those social connections were were missing in them. I think one of them said, this is sort of like a finishing school. I never realized I could uh, put the squeeze on somebody by threatening their brother, for example, because you could never put the squeeze on me by threatening my brother, because I'm not my brother. So the social connections that bind all of us are missing in psychopaths, and those that got this group therapy used it. Uh, uh, it was very interesting in a, in a way that uh, uh, made them worse instead of Instead of better, and that's uh, uh, that's consistent with much of the work done on psychopaths that show there's not much therapy that does any good at all and some that uh, some that does more harm than good, although there's some recent I, I can't remember if I talk about this in the book, I think I do there's some recent work by a wonderful fellow in in uh, Wisconsin uh, treating children with uh, psychopathic tendencies and getting some great results. So it's a fascinating book and uh, we could spend many hours discussing
0: many different things that are in it. And it's a book, as I say, that I think should be read by anyone or everyone because um, we've all experienced punishment and we've all meted out punishment. But one of the interesting things you move on to is, given that there there has to be punishment, um, how we make judgments about who to punish and how much to punish them uh, and how... Um, emotion and psychology plays a large role in that. Um, So I want to talk a little bit um, about the famous trolley experiment you mentioned. and This again is a thought experiment along the lines of there's a runaway uh, railway trolley on a track, and it's bearing down on a group of workers. Um, you have the ability to throw a switch, which will divert this runaway trolley onto another track, where it will only kill one worker. So you, you have to make a, a decision uh, to save the lives of many, but you will cause harm to one individual. And people um, make a decision, usually whereby they save the larger group of workers by throwing the switch uh, when they're put, when they're asked this question by the experimenter, what they would do, and they are uh, usually, in a large majority of cases, willing to kill the one worker to save the lives of many. However, when the experiment is changed so that you are personally responsible for throwing someone off the of a bridge uh, of a railroad in order to save the lives of others, things change
1: dramatically. Could you say a little bit about that experiment? Yes. The, so the second version is what is what they call the bridge variation. So, and they are different there are different varieties of it, but uh, but 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 the idea is that um in the in the control version not not the bridge version but in the control version, where um subject are asked to throw the switch that kills one to save five, most people are utilitarians, that is to say one most people say yes it's better to kill one and save five, and so they throw the so they throw the switch not not everybody by the way um this this experiment also has been conducted many, many many times uh, millions of times in, in uh, many different varieties, including in 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 the scanner uh, but but most people I, I, um, I think I think the numbers maybe are 70 30 in the original version that is that seventy percent of people will throw the switch. 30 percent of the people won't and um, but those numbers pretty much switch around when we're talking about the bridge variation. And the bridge variation is you're on top of a bridge, and the way you uh, save the five is to push somebody, uh, push the victim over the bridge to to, to stop the trolley. So so the the utilitarian inquiry is the same. You're still killing one to save five, but the way that you're killing one is um, so much more direct. First of all, you're touching them you're pushing them, you're instead of just throwing a a switch, and and as a just a matter of empirics, the, the numbers switch around almost exactly, instead of being 70 percent um, being willing to throw the switch, now only 30 percent are willing to push the person off the bridge. Uh, and there's been some fascinating work, mostly by Josh Green at Harvard, who did this experiment in the scanner to try to untangle what's what's going on between people who we might call are our, our, our utilitarians and people who we might call are more, more ontologists. Uh, fascinating work by Josh.
0: So I think basically one of the theses, the fundamental theses of the book, is that we've hived off punishment uh, in a very organized way, because we live in an organized, complex society, to a group of people, judges, juries, the court system, and We kind of become complacent um, about the idea that we let this third-party group of people do all that, Um, whereas you seem, I think, to be arguing in the book we should pay much more attention to what that group of people are up to um, and be more involved. Um, you make an interesting point that in medieval times, the, the miscreant in the village would be put in stocks and we would throw rotten apples at them, but somehow we would actually be more vividly experiencing their punishment. Um, and that allows other social processes in play, like forgiveness, perhaps. Um, whereas today, you, someone commits a crime, you don't really know what happens to them. They end up in prison, they may be released, and it's because of that lack of contact, the, the almost industrialization, as it were, of the judiciary, that I think you seem to be arguing, I don't know whether you're
1: going to agree with me, is problematic. No, uh, you've got it exactly right, and, and I love your phrase, hived off. It has so many um, <laughs> so many layers of meaning, including... Uh, including um, alluding to the social insects, hived off. That's, that's fabulous. Um, no, yes, the, in, 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 I think you, you've got this exactly right. There's, there's sort of an antiseptic way that we have come to punish um, that, uh, that interferes with lots of punishment's functions, including, uh, including forgiveness. Well, the, the act of punishment emotionally returns us to the baseline or almost to the baseline um, of forgiving people and let them and letting them come back into the social uh, fold. But if we never, if we never um, get the satisfaction of, of, of even seeing punishment, let alone imposing it ourselves, it risks um, interfering with that ability to forgive. And, and so what happens in, in my courtroom and what happens in most modern, I think every modern courtroom is—you know—we have this morality play uh, play out in open court, very intensely. Um, it's quite amazing to see, and then the punishments impose and and the defendant in my courtroom walks behind a hidden door, and nobody sees him again. And um, and a punishment that is that hived off, to use your phrase is punishment that, that uh, risks losing some of its social meaning. Um, I see this happen uh, all the time in my courtroom. And so I suggest in the book that one of the ways we can, a, a big problem with, with modern punishment is the problem of repatriation and, and, the, and the way we have, have treated um, people who commit crimes as if they're a different species, as if they're they need to go somewhere where we're not, and so the the punishment of them is permanent. We've um, we've sent them away to to prisons where none of us ever see them again, and 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 what that does is risks interfering with our ability to to forgive them and welcome them back into the fold. And so we have a tremendous problem, especially in the United States, with um, with what I call in the book repatriation, and, and um, people with fel- felony records can't get jobs, people without jobs um, commit more felonies. It's a, it's a vicious cycle that, that, that our evolved brains are meant to deal with uh, through the institution of forgiveness, uh, but forgiveness is, is hard in the modern world because of how we impose this punishment.
0: So one final point, uh, Maurice, what I particularly love about your book, and just a reminder, the book is entitled The Punisher's Brain, The Evolution of Judge and Jury. It's published by Cambridge um, uh, University Press, Uh, is that you are actually a practicing trial judge, and the book is also littered with anecdotes from real-life Situations, and I wondered, and I can't remember exactly whether it's you. I think it is you. Um, you give a, a a lovely anecdote of, um, I think it's a bank teller who is sentenced for fraud, and the judge, and it might be you. I can't remember exactly. <clears throat> lectures this teller a little bit about the shame that they have brought on their family, and then something happens which makes the judge regret their little uh, moralistic lecture that they've given um, just after the sentencing. Could
1: you say something about that? Anecdote? Yes, this was, this did not happen to me, it happened to a friend of mine who sits in the federal court here and um, and he wrote about it and I and I repeated it in the, in the book. What happened to him is, you've got the story exactly right, it was a very young uh, bank teller who uh, engaged in some a fairly small amount of embezzlement to, about a car loan that she was having. Problems uh, paying off. Anyway, she was uh, charged with embezzlement. She she pleaded guilty to some uh, lesser offense, and uh, during the sentencing uh, hearing, my friend John Kane uh, reported that he was very stern with her. Uh, he, he he decided early on to give her uh, probation and not to send send her to any prison time. But in the course of being of, of um, of imposing this, since he decided, even though he wasn't going to give her probation, that at least he'd he'd uh, talk harshly to her, and he and he spoke so harshly to her, she was so afraid that she ended up urinating in the well of the courtroom, and as he got up to leave, he saw a giant puddle where she was standing, and he he writes, and I re-report in the book that. Um, uh, as he went back to his office, uh, he threw off his robe and he decided that he had disgraced it by the way that he um, talked to this woman. It's a hard thing to um, separate separate out sometimes the emotion of punishment from, uh, from sort of the rationale of punishment. We have, all of us, had just terrible, terrible wrongdoers in front of us that that um, that deserved every bit of every punishment that we could impose and more and there's this tension always between um, well, I call it in the book confusing second party punishment with, with third party punishment our job is to punish on behalf of the group and sometimes that's very hard because sometimes the victims anger the victims resentment gets channeled through us and we end up being as as resentful and angry at this wrong as the victim is. And there's a reason we don't let victims punish wrongdoers. And and the reason is victims can't be just in the punishment of wrongdoers. But judges are supposed to be just. And so somehow we have to be able to get out of this emotional trap. And it's not always easy. Maurice
0: Hoffman, author of The Punisher's Brain, The Evolution of Judge and Jury, thank you very much
1: indeed. Thank you, and I want to thank uh, especially the uh, um, uh, Royal College of Psychiatrists. It's just been a pleasure. Thank you.